Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and for Easter we are praying the Regina Chaley. Let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Queen of heaven, rejoice. Alleluia. The Son whom you merited to bear. Alleluia. Has risen as he said. Alleluia. Rejoice and be glad, O Virgin Mary. Alleluia. For the Lord has truly risen. Alleluia. Let us pray. O God, who through the resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, did vouchsafe to give joy to the world, grant, we beseech you, that through his mother, the Virgin Mary, we may obtain the joys of everlasting life through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop breaks down one of the most well-known Bible passages, John 3.16. Then it's on to the Feast of St. Mark the Evangelist and listener-submitted questions. To submit your question, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. We're still celebrating Easter as the Easter season is in full effect. Last week, you ran through all of the Gospels and their their Easter accounts, the the resurrection accounts. And today's gospel reading, it, it it's kind of interesting because this seems like a, a Lenten gospel. In fact, maybe we did have this reading during Lent. I, I don't remember. John 3.16, a very popular verse, maybe the most popular verse in the whole Bible. Right. Wow. Yeah. And everybody probably knows this. People hold it up in signs at athletic games right. and stuff in the stadiums. I'll just repeat it. Well, why don't we, do you want to read the whole passage? This is, today's gospel is John chapter three, verses 16 to 21. And it's that uh, conversation, Jesus with Nicodemus. Why don't you read that passage? Sure. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that everyone who believes in him might not perish but might have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe has already been condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the verdict, that the light came into the world, but people preferred darkness to light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come toward the light, so that his works might not be exposed. But whoever lives in the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be clearly seen as done in God. Very good. Um, so he really gets to the heart of, of the gospel when John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. Because the world is under condemnation, it's in darkness, mm-hmm. and because of sin. But God the Father doesn't want the world to perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish. So he gives his son so that the world might be saved through mm-hmm. him. And when we think of that gift of salvation, what is it? The gift of salvation is eternal life. It's this participation in the divine life of the Holy Trinity. Now, we accept this gift through faith. 
through faith in Jesus. That's the main point here. Faith means that we're consenting to this, that we're saying yes. It's a human response. And that's why, you know, St. John says, God gave his only son that everyone who believes in him might not perish but might have eternal life. So this important aspect of this human response of faith. But remember, faith is a grace. It's a gift of God. In the catechism, it says it's a supernatural virtue Hmm. infused by God. And at the same time, it's a human response. It's something that we freely assent to. So we are not just passive in this. We have to assent. We have to believe. And that's why that's what John emphasizes, the importance here of faith. And it says, what's the consequence? Well, whoever believes in him, St. John says, will not be condemned. But whoever does not believe has already been condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What does it mean, in believing in the name? Well, name means the reality. Right. So believing in the reality of the Son of God. And we're free to refuse you know, to believe. And then we remain under condemnation. We remain in darkness. So John says really very clearly then, and this is the verdict, that the light came into the world. But people preferred darkness to light because their works were evil. So the verdict, the Greek word here is the word krisis, which means it's translated crisis. But in the biblical sense, a crisis is a situation of judgment. So a krisis, it's this critical moment. It's a judgment. Here it's translated by the word verdict. So here's the verdict. The light came into the world. That's the Son of God came into this fallen world, a world that is in darkness, the darkness of sin. And people can either respond to the light by faith in Christ, or they can stay in darkness or unbelief. So that's the crisis. It's a decision, okay, a judgment. And as St. John says, you know, people prefer darkness to light. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come toward the light so that his works might not be exposed. This idea of light and darkness, by the way, is very prominent in John's gospel. Mm -hmm. You know, we see it a lot. And when you think about it then, the decision for faith or the decision not to believe, it's not just something intellectual. It's not just something of the mind. There's a moral dimension to it. It has to do with our life. That's why John here speaks about their works. And then he says, but whoever lives the truth comes to the light. So by faith, okay, we we believe in Jesus, and that requires that we turn away from sin and embrace a new way of life, the life of love in imitation of Jesus. And the light of God, the divine light, then reveals so that Our works are exposed, it says, clearly seen as done in God. So it's really a beautiful passage here. It gets really to the uh, some very substantial truths that God offers us, this pure gift of a life 
that exceeds anything we could accomplish by ourselves. You know, he told Nicodemus that we must be born again from above. Mm -hmm. The action by which we receive this gift of salvation is in this new life is to believe in Christ and believe in his love for us, his redeeming act of love on the cross. And God gives us the grace. He takes the initiative. He takes the first step. He moves us to faith. But then it's our job, our role to cooperate with it and to consent to it. It seems odd that this is during the Easter season. It seems like the Easter vigil would have been a really good place for this because it talks about the death of Jesus, that he gave his only begotten son. But also right before it, it has a reference to Moses, which would have tied it in with the first readings. Why are we hearing this during the Easter season? I think because, you know, that's still that theme of light so prominent at the Easter vigil, especially mm-hmm. with the, you know, the churches in darkness at the beginning, and then you have the lighting of the fire and the lighting of the Paschal candle. So not just the readings, but also, and then you have the first, the, the creation reading and God saying, let there be light. I mean, light is such a big part of the Easter vigil, but we don't want to lose sight of that. So this comes up in the Easter season. So we're kind of reminded of right. what we heard at the Easter vigil. All right. And this is a conversation you mentioned at the beginning with Nicodemus. Mm-hmm. Can you just give a little backstory on who he is and why why does that matter? Yeah. I mean, remember, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. So we often think of, we have such a negative preconception of the Pharisees, but they weren't all bad. Uh-huh. You know, Nicodemus was was open. He had questions, you know, and that was that dialogue was really enlightening for Nicodemus. Jesus enlightened him. And and then again, we see at the end of the Gospels how Nicodemus was there at the tomb. Mm-hmm. So, so it's kind of an example of, of a Pharisee who, who actually did come to faith. Sure. Coming up, we'll talk about St. Mark and also have some listener-submitted questions right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And this coming Saturday, or maybe if you're listening to the rerun, today is Saturday, but Saturday is the Feast of St. Mark the Evangelist. And I don't feel like we've talked about him a whole lot so far. So maybe we can talk a little bit about him and then break down a little bit of the gospel passage from Saturday. St. Mark, whenever we talk about the 12, not one of the 12 apostles. Uh, Right. His symbol is the winged lion, mm-hmm. which is there any particular reason for that? Do you remember when we did the prophets, the prophet Ezekiel, uh-huh. you know, in the first chapter, uh, verse 10, it says, and as for the likeness of their faces, there was a face of a man and the face of a lion and the face of an ox and the face of an eagle. And the church interpreted those four living creatures from the book of Ezekiel as symbolic of the four evangelists. Mm -hmm. So we talked about that. So we have this borrowing from Ezekiel. So which evangelist is which? Do you remember? Oh, uh, St. John is the eagle. Right. St. Matthew is the cow, the ox. No, that's Luke. Luke, okay. The ox, yeah. So then St. Matthew's the human. Right, the man. And as you said, you know, we're going to be celebrating St. Mark, and St. Mark is depicted as a lion. 
And it's usually about how each of the Gospels begin. So Mark's Gospel begins with the mighty roar of John the Baptist. Mm. John the Baptist calling the people to repentance. So like a lion. Uh And so that's how Mark's gospel begins. So he's depicted as a lion. All right. Well, what else do we know about him other than the fact that he was the author of the gospel of Mark? What what else do we know? Well, I could go on quite a bit about this because there's a lot of scholarship about Mark. So yeah, we can talk a little bit about him. As you said, he wasn't one of the 12 apostles. So we know that this gospel... Most scholars say it was the first, the earliest of the four Gospels. There's a minority of opinion that says that Matthew was written first, but the majority of scholars say Mark. And how do we know? Why does it have the name Mark? I mean, he didn't sign it. But the earliest manuscripts that we have of this Gospel, which really go back to the third century, all have the words kata markon, which means according to Mark. Hmm. So... It's really an ancient tradition. Clearly, Mark was a disciple of Simon Peter. Mm-hmm. We do know that. We can see that he wrote his gospel based on the preaching of St. Peter in Rome. Mm-hmm. How do we know that? Well, we have a third-generation Christian named Papias or Papias, who wrote that Mark was Peter's interpreter and that he wrote down as much as he remembered of the words and deeds of the Lord. Mark himself didn't hear the Lord, nor was he in, in Jesus's company, but he joined Peter and he learned all of this from Peter. So not long after that, in the second century, we have St. Clement of Alexandria basically saying the same thing, that in Rome, many were requesting that Mark write out kind of what Peter preached. There's other early fathers of the church like Irenaeus and early Christians like Tertullian and Origen, the second and third centuries. So really the testimony is very consistent that Peter was really the primary source for Mark's information Mm -hmm. about the life of Jesus. When you look at certain passages, when you're reading the New Testament, for example, if you look at the first letter of Peter, Peter sends greetings from Mark, my son, who is with me in Babylon. Babylon, by the way, was a code name for Rome. So, huh. so there he's, you know, we have actually this first letter of Peter in the scriptures in the New Testament who says, Mark's with me. Mark, mm-hmm. my son. Mm-hmm. So obviously they were close. Now, Mark the evangelist, this is where we get a little bit of debate. Is, is he the same one in the, that in the Acts of the Apostles is named John Mark. Mm-hmm. And there's those who say yes, and there are those who say no. If he is the same, this John Mark was a Jewish Christian whose mother Mary owned a house in Jerusalem that was large enough for the Christians to use as a meeting place and very possibly the upper room uh-huh. where Jesus, where the Last Supper was held. Huh and where the disciples stayed after the ascension. So that's, that's a question. We know from the letter to the Colossians that Mark was a cousin of Barnabas as well. And 
that if it was this John Mark, he was an assistant on Paul's first missionary journey. Hmm. We know that Mark abandoned that mission and Paul got upset. And for some reason, there was then became a dispute between Paul and Barnabas. Do you remember that? Of course, Barnabas is Mark's cousin. So when they were going to have another uh, missionary trip, Paul didn't want Mark along anymore. Uh-huh. Barnabas did. So this led to a dispute. We do know that there was eventually a reconciliation between Mark and Paul because in other letters then Paul writes with appreciation of Mark as a co-worker of the gospel, but there was that little blip. We don't know exactly why Mark abandoned that mission at the beginning. Tradition is then that Mark went to establish after Peter's martyrdom and after everything, after writing the gospel, that he went to Alexandria in Egypt and established the church there. And even now, there's great devotion to St. Mark in Alexandria. The whole Coptic church is considered the church that was founded by St. Mark. He was the first bishop of Alexandria. Clearly, when you look at Mark's gospel, it was written for the Roman Christians. They're the ones who asked him to write down Peter's recollections. And this would have been the time that Nero was the emperor. So we're not exactly sure, but there was this, well, we know there was a brutal persecution going on. Mm -hmm. Now, some will date the gospel of Mark to shortly before Peter's martyrdom, which was around 66, 67 AD, when Peter was crucified, Mm -hmm. or shortly after. We don't know exactly, but pretty unanimous that it was in the 60s. Okay. And it was for the Roman Christians. They were a community in crisis. This was a brutal persecution. Nero was having Christians crucified and burned Mm -hmm. on the crosses, setting them on fire or feeding them to wild beasts, etc. Do we know how Mark was martyred? You know, this was really centuries later. They talked about that his body was dragged through the streets and... So he would have died a martyr's death. So that's kind of a later tradition. How historical it really is, we're not sure. Okay. We do know that his body was was venerated in Alexandria, but then eventually it was taken to Venice when, I forget what was going on. I think Alexandria, oh yeah, when Alexandria and Egypt were getting overrun by the Muslims, the Venetians who were merchants in that, they took Mark's body back to Venice to huh. save his relics. Okay. So the great Basilica of St. Mark in Venice has his, his relics. Hmm. It's the shortest of the Gospels. When you think about it, it was, as I said, written in the 60s. So it really was only a few decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus. When you look at the gospel, it's a total of 661 verses. It's Hmm. the shortest of all. And about 90% of what's in Mark is in Matthew. And about 55% of what's in Mark is in Luke. So most scholars say that the gospel of Mark was a principal source used by Matthew and Luke. Uh Uh-huh. So where did Matthew and Luke get their other material? There's a hypothesis that there's another document, another source called the Q source. It's a Q means source, 
well, I can't get into it. There's a lot of theories about, about all of this. As I said, there's a minority of scholars who say Matthew's gospel came first, but the, the majority of, of scholars say that Mark's was composed first. Hmm. It's very fascinating to look at the development of the gospels, and Mark's gospel is very plain in a sense of simple. Kind of like a Greek, a style of Greek that anyone could understand, kind of. You know, you can tell he's writing for Roman Christians because you see different Latin things that he explains in his, like he's the only one who refers to the centurion and the Roman coins and different things like that. So, so there are various things that you can tell the Roman connection and that he huh. would have composed it there because that's where Peter was in right. those latter years. So anyhow, I hope this is helpful, learning a little bit about Mark. Again, when you start studying this, you know, different scholars have different opinions. I've kind of shared, I'd say, what is the most common that the majority of scholars say. So just to recap, whether or not he was the John Mark of the Acts of the Apostles, we're not exactly sure. Scholars Mm -hmm. differ on that. We do know for sure that he was a co-worker of Peter and he was a cousin of Barnabas. You know, we also have his connection with St. Paul. So it's very interesting to learn about, about this, this great evangelist and then that he founded the church in Alexandria. Mm-hmm. So then for his feast day on Saturday, they had, I guess, all of the gospels of Mark to choose from. Why do you think they chose Mark 16 verses 15 through 20 as the gospel? Very interesting because that, if you recall, is the longer ending, the appendix that he didn't write himself. So, oh, right. <laughs> but it is the very end and it's the commissioning of the apostles. And I think that's why. By the way, I, I, I don't want to forget to tell you this. There's a couple other little theories out there about Mark. Uh, something that's in his gospel and not in the others is when he's talking about the arrest of Jesus. Remember the they talk about a young man who was following him. All he had on was a linen cloth. And uh-huh. when they seized him, he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Right. Which is a really interesting detail. Uh-huh. <laughs> Some say that was Mark. I've heard that. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. I don't I don't think there's any any historicity to Just, that, but it's but gotta it's be a somebody. Story. Why yeah, not? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the fact is, he's the only one who wrote it, so maybe maybe it was him, but, you know, I don't know. Just, he didn't want to say it was me. It was just some, some guy, there was... <laughs> Why don't we read this, this Mark chapter 16, verses 15 to 20. Do you want to read it, Kyle? Sure. Jesus appeared to the eleven and said to them, Go into the whole world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak new languages. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly thing, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Then the Lord Jesus, after he spoke to them, was taken up into heaven and took his seat at the right hand of God. But they went forth and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word through accompanying signs. Yeah, the Great Commission, go into the whole world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. This is the same commission that was given at the end of Matthew's gospel, if you remember, where 
Jesus appears in the risen Jesus appears in Galilee. So it's that commissioning that the gospel's destined not just for Jews, but for the whole world, for Gentiles as well as Jews. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. No, it's not just belief alone. Hmm. That faith has to be expressed and ratified with baptism, which mm-hmm. is an action of God that unites us with Jesus in his death and resurrection. And whoever does not believe, refuses to accept it, forfeits this gift of salvation. That's why it says whoever does not believe will be condemned. Which those two things were reminiscent of what we just talked about with John. Exactly. John chapter John three. Chapter three. Yep. And it says the same thing, that if you believe you'll be saved. If you don't, then you're condemned. Right, right. Exactly. And then here are these, how Jesus promises supernatural signs and wonders. Mm -hmm. And it's not just signs that will accompany the apostles. It says these signs will accompany those who believe. Mm -hmm. So what, what are those signs? Well, in my name, they'll drive out demons. They'll speak new languages, probably a reference to the gift of tongues Mm -hmm. at, at Pentecost. They'll pick up serpents with their hands. They'll be protected from poison, poisonous drinks. And then he says, the believers will lay hands on the sick for healing, just like the 12 had done earlier in Mark's gospel. So when you think about the preaching of the gospel, it's accompanied by these works of healing and deliverance. So God's power is is demonstrated. So really healings were big part of the credentials of the, I mean, we see it in the Acts of the Apostles. And you see kind of a new impetus today where, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've noticed in some of our parishes and that this, they're having healing masses and right. things like that, or especially the charismatic renewal, kind of recapturing this aspect of that ordinary Christians, that there can be these signs that confirm the word that is proclaimed. Something good to think about. Well, it kind of makes me wonder, what does that say about our faith if we're not experiencing these things? If we aren't healing people and we're not doing miraculous things, is that a sign of our lack of faith? I mean, really, when Jesus worked miracles, often, most of the time, he, you know, faith was required on the part of the people mm-hmm. to receive them. That's why he didn't work any miracles in Nazareth, remember? Right. You know, there wasn't huh. faith. Yeah, and I think you see throughout the history of the church, you see healings that have taken place. You see, I mean, everything from lords in France to, uh, but how frequent, how often, how demonstrable they are, that's always a question. But we shouldn't doubt the healing power Mm -hmm. of Christ. Good reminder. All right, well, if you have any questions, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You could text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have some questions about an odd rosary. And Father Eric Bergner has a question about philosophy. Right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, asking the questions that you've submitted for Bishop to respond to. Our first listener submits in response to the question on the March 25th episode that asked if the dead in purgatory can pray for us, and can the dead in hell be sent as demons to attack us? 
My vote is to agree with St. Robert Bellarmine. My reasoning is that we are taught that purgatory purifies one of any remaining inordinate self-love, and also that one gains no merit by what one does or endures in that state. Therefore, it would seem that interceding for others without any personal gain or glory from such intercession would be an exercise of charity, especially made available to those in purgatory. Further, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, our Lord himself might be understood as implying the possibility of one who has died, but is not in heaven interceding for others, as the rich man interceded for his brothers. Very interesting comments. I like that. Uh, Yeah. I mean, we could really delve into this some more if you'd like, but if our listeners heard that when I talked about this before, that the church doesn't have in any official teaching on whether or not the souls in purgatory can pray for us. All the emphasis is our praying for the souls in purgatory, that they need our prayers. They need our sacrifices. There's nothing official in church teaching about the poor souls in purgatory praying for us. As a matter of fact, as I said in an earlier program, St. Thomas Aquinas denies that the souls in purgatory can pray for us. He says they're not in a position to pray for us. Rather, we must make intercession for them. And as I said before, St. Robert Bellarmine disagreed with St. Thomas Aquinas. And and our listener agrees with St. Robert Bellarmine. And it's interesting. I mean, others and even some saints after St. Robert Bellarmine agreed with him that the souls in purgatory can pray for us. St. Alphonsus Liguori, for example, St. Catherine of Bologna would be another one. And I don't want to take sides necessarily, but it would seem that we should take seriously what St. Thomas Aquinas says. First of all, there are various objections to the idea of the poor souls interceding for us. St. Thomas says they're not in a state to offer assistance to us, but rather are in need of our prayers. And if they could pray for us, this is another thing I think to think about, how do they know what we need? How, how They don't seem to know anything of what we're experiencing. They would have no knowledge of our request for their assistance. Huh. The saints in heaven know of occurrences on earth because they have the beatific vision, the infusion of knowledge in their intellect. But the souls in purgatory lack the beatific vision. And I guess, well, God could give them this infused knowledge, but most theologians and doctors of the church basically say the poor souls know nothing of what's occurring on earth. Mm-hmm. And I think it's significant that in the hist- the tradition of the church, in the liturgy, the church never invokes the prayers of the souls in purgatory. Uh, and to me, that's a really important thing. In the liturgy through the centuries, the church doesn't ask for the prayers of the souls in purgatory. I don't know of any of the fathers of the church who believed that the souls in purgatory could intercede for us. Hmm. And even St. Robert Bellarmine, who believed that the poor souls could pray for us, he also said they would have no knowledge of what they should pray for. Hmm. You know, so interesting. it's an interesting. Uh, uh, but then we have this, you know, these saints who later claimed that the poor souls do intercede for them. And 
St. Alphonsus Liguori would be one, St. Catherine of Bologna. Could God grant special kind of dispensation to the poor souls so that they would hear or answer our prayers? He could. But I wouldn't recommend the regular habit of asking for prayers of the poor souls. I think what's very strong in the church's tradition is our duty to pray for them. Hmm. I would just stick with praying, asking the saints in heaven to pray for us, because sure. there we know that they do. Right, right. All right. Another listener said, I found a rosary used by a family member that had seven decades with seven beads in each section. It looks to be quite worn, so I feel he used it a lot. What kind of rosary might this be? Oh, I have an answer to that right away. That's okay. a Franciscan rosary. Okay, a Franciscan rosary, also called the Franciscan crown, has seven decades. And the seven decades of the Franciscan rosary all are the seven joys of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Hmm. And this devotion, this seven-decade rosary, was promoted by St. Bonaventure and St. Bernardine of Siena, St. John of Capistrano, the seven joys of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So that's I'm sure that's what the uh, listener saw. And the seven joys kind of, we, have, we all know the seven sorrows of the uh. Blessed Virgin Mary, and especially we focus on them during Lent. Actually, these seven joys of the Virgin Mary, that's kind of neat to, in the Easter season. But they, yeah. are, they are, number one, the Annunciation, which is also the first joyful mystery. The Visitation, also that's the second joyful mystery. Uh. The birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's also the third joyful mystery. So it's okay. three. And then the adoration of the Magi. That is not uh-huh. among the joyful mysteries. We have the presentation of the child Jesus. Uh-huh. The fifth joy of the Blessed Virgin Mary is the finding of the child Jesus in the temple, okay. which of course is the fifth joyful mystery. The sixth joy of Mary is the appearance of Jesus to Mary after the resurrection. Okay. And then the seventh is the assumption and the coronation of Mary as queen of heaven and earth, which is really the fourth and fifth glorious mystery. So, so you see this overlapping of the mysteries, sure. but it's neat. So a seven-decade rosary, if people are interested in it, as I said, it's a Franciscan tradition. They call the Franciscan rosary also the Franciscan crown. Hmm. Very interesting. Another listener asked... In the gospel's description of the resurrection, why did Mary Magdalene think someone stole Christ's body? I thought the Jews started rumors that his body was stolen later on. So I wondered why Mary would have suspected that. Well, I think it would be kind of natural in the sense of, even though Jesus had spoken about his resurrection, I think that didn't sink in Mm -hmm. with the apostles or with Mary Magdalene. So when she found the tomb empty, I think the natural thing is, well, someone took the body. Mm -hmm. I think that was just a very natural reaction. It was, it was when she met the risen Lord, when the Lord appeared to her, that she, that she, she believed. Now, that whole idea of of maybe the body was stolen, we read about that in the Gospel of Matthew, when Mary Magdalene arrived at the tomb. There was an earthquake. The tomb rolls open in front of her. Angel appeared. Guards were scared away. And the empty tomb was revealed. And when the guards reported this to the chief priests, 
the priests bribed the guards to lie about the events. And this is what Matthew says. I'll read it. Some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders, they devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, you must say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story is still told among the Jews to this day. Hmm. So that's Matthew. Um, it's really the, the stolen body hypothesis. It's, uh, so we find that in, in the Gospel of Matthew. So we know that there was this, uh, this word that uh, spread that the body had been stolen by some of the disciples. Obviously, it was a lie, as it says, that was spread by, by the Jewish high priests. But getting back to Mary, I'm kind of going off the topic, but, but really back to um, Mary Magdalene, I, I just think it would have been kind of a normal thing, like, like who took the body? It's not right. here. Right. Yeah. Next question comes from Father Eric Bergner, who said, how is philosophy helpful to religion? And he says, naturalism, universalism, rationalism, etc." Oh, Father Eric, thank you for that question. We could have a whole episode on this. I'm sure Father Eric has read the encyclical of St. John Paul II, Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason. Uh-huh. And philosophy is part of the training for of our seminarians for the priesthood. Sure. They all get a bachelor's degree in philosophy. And I think when I hear that question, I, I think back to the encyclical of Pope Leo the Thirteenth, Eterni Patris. I think that's the first encyclical that ever was all about philosophy, and he was talking about renewal of philosophical studies. And so Leo the Thirteenth really developed what the First Vatican Council said about faith and reason, and how philosophical thinking really can contribute to fundamental ways to faith and theological learning. And um, he talked about the incomparable value of the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas and that that's his philosophy is so much in line with the demands of faith. Whereas St. Thomas, you know, he does distinguish between faith and reason, but then he unites them. You know, you see in the early church, the fathers of the church, how they use Greek philosophy. And, you know, it's really, and what John Paul said in his encyclical Faith and Reason, he spoke of faith and reason being two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. Hmm. So the church has always had this great respect for philosophy and has had this great interest in philosophy. But the truth is there are certain philosophical currents, especially certain things in contemp- well, modern and contemporary philosophy, which we would have problems with. We can learn from all different philosophies. However, we find that there are certain philosophies that like nihilism, which basically is that there's no point, there's no meaning in life. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Marxism which is obviously an atheistic philosophy, class conflict, etc. So there's various philosophies that we believe don't 
really help us rise to the truth. Sure. Materialism. We see a trend of abandoning metaphysics, the, the study of being. So some of the ultimate human questions that traditional philosophy has, has looked at is unfortunately, you know, certain contemporary philosophies have really abandoned those ultimate questions, kind of just becoming skeptical that truth can ever be arrived at. Mm-hmm. So to answer Father Eric's question, yeah, there's a great contribution of good philosophy, a lot of positive things, but then there are also things that are not helpful. Certainly the interaction between philosophy and theology is important. Even some of the language that we have in in our dogmas have philosophical meanings. I mean, we use some philosophical terms in explaining different things about our faith, you know, like the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of the Eucharist. We speak in with the Eucharist, we speak about substance and accidents. Mm-hmm. That's scholastic philosophy going back to, to Aristotle, really. So we can use philosophy and, and philosophy contribute a lot. So I hope that answers this question. That's kind of a, kind of a general answer to a very involved question. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, if you have questions, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, submit your question there, or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, Bishop will answer some questions that are left over from the Rekindle the Fire Men's Conference here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. I will share the questions that people have submitted. These actually came from the Rekindle the Fire Men's Conference. There's a bunch of questions we didn't get to. A lot of them had some kind of variation of this question. My wife and four of my five children have fallen away from the Catholic Church. What can I do to bring them back to the faith? Well, that's a good question. I get that question a lot too. First of all, they are free, so you can't, in a sense, do it for them. Mm. They have the gift of freedom. But your witness to the faith can be a positive element. Also, your prayers for them. So I would encourage anyone who has a family member or a loved one or a friend who's no longer practicing the faith and, and it, uh, to, to always pray for them, to continue to love them to love them, to witness to Christ to them, to show them what it means to to be a disciple of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's the most convincing way. And also, every individual is different. If I was trying to help someone come back to the practice of the faith, it's not like one size fits all. Besides the prayer and witness, there might be particular reasons, there usually are, that different people have stopped practicing the faith. Mm-hmm. For some, it might be they disagree with the moral teaching of the church. For some, it might be that they've lost faith in God. For others, it might be that they're just simply lazy. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of see each as an individual. But I don't know that you can argue someone back to the faith. I mean, apologetics right. is important. However, in the end, you know, it's a it, it's the freedom of the person, and what would inspire one to come back is that their hearts are touched. Hmm. Maybe in certain cases, it's their minds because they're questioning things about the faith. 
But for a lot of people, it's their heart. Mm-hmm. If their heart is, a, is away from the Lord and away from his church, it's about conversion of hearts. And that's where prayer and love are most powerful. Yeah. All right. Another person asked, is loving God or renouncing Satan more important? Loving God necessarily includes renouncing Satan. You can't love God and not renounce Satan. Could you renounce Satan but not love God? That's possible, I think. Yeah. You know, but I mean, if you renounce Satan, what else? Then you know, but yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. But I would always put love of God. That's the first commandment, right? You know, and if one loves God, one necessarily rejects God's enemy, mm-hmm. rejects evil. Right. So yeah, I hope that answers the question. All right. Well, thank you again, Bishop, for another great episode of Truth and Charity. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.